CHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. I'm reporter Hannah Mersbach. Coming up on today's show, snowpacks in the West are off to a promising start, but experts say it's too early to call if this will make a dent in the region's mega drought. Invariably, you'll get caught with your pants down if you if you think you know what's going to happen. And local music therapist Hilary Camino worked with healthcare workers to process their traumas through songwriting. We know with trauma, we hold it in our bodies. And so when we're playing music, we're using our bodies to make that music. And so you can be more in touch with those bodily sensations. But first, we take a look at childcare in Wyoming. The pandemic highlighted holes in early childhood services, but two new bills could help fill those gaps. One would create special districts for early childhood development, while another would exempt property tax on childcare facilities. Teton County Commissioner Natalia Macker is a mother of three children, and she helped draft the bills. Wyoming Public Radio's Camilla Kodalska spoke with Macker about why it's important to focus on early child care. In Wyoming, one in three residents live in a child care desert where there aren't enough child care spots for the number of children under the age of five. All across our state, there are communities that don't have enough child care or that are facing child care challenges of different stripes that are unique to their community. And I think the reason why this bill is so exciting um, as a place to start the dialogue about how we can support childcare across our state is that it keeps the focus on the local community deciding what it needs for itself. Um, can you explain when you say childcare, what does that entail? In, in the space of this bill, it can mean a lot of different things. So there's, for most of us, we probably say childcare and we think of a facility or a center where parents can take their kids for the majority of the workday. That certainly could be a solution that a, an early education district might propose. But in Wyoming, in such a rural state with very rural counties, other alternatives could exist. There are home-based daycares, um, but there could be community-created solutions. Employers um, create child care centers and they're on-site. Um, I know that's happening multiple places around the state where school districts or hospitals or other employers in order to uh, attract workers and retain their workforce are providing childcare on site. There isn't one one size fits all. Early education also is parent education um, and helping parents uh, who maybe wanna come for just a couple of hours a day with their kid and have some enriching activities and learn what they wanna learn about those early years because the development from birth to five um, and especially from birth to three are really critical years. Um, in a in a child's development and have impacts on their outcomes in life later. And so giving communities an opportunity to look at what their needs are from uh, a childcare perspective to enable parents to be in the workforce, but also from a child development perspective to arm parents with information they need um, and find what works for their community and let the community come together locally and make those choices. Can you kind of just 
uh, describe what these early childhood development special districts um, are and what do they do? Uh, the way the bill is written right now, a community, either the, the county commissioners or petitioners in a community could put a petition forward to create the district. The first activity uh, of the district would be to create a plan for services. And that is where I think uh, some really exciting work could happen uh, in Wyoming with communities coming together, kind of bringing everyone together from the business sector, parents, childcare providers, early education specialists to understand what the needs are, identify what kinds of services they want to provide. Likely there are already people providing those services and so it would provide additional funding because there would be uh, the potential to assess mills to generate funding to support that service. And I think it's important to remember that uh, childcare as uh, a business or a business model is unsustainable. Um, and we've seen that for many years and particularly during the pandemic that was greatly revealed uh, how narrow the margins are and how much our economy depends on childcare and early childhood education. Um, and we have not invested in it the same way that we invest in K through 12 or that we invest in higher education and community colleges. We need to start doing that. And I think this is a way um, to allow communities that choose to do it to come together and start figuring out how to do that at the local level. Why now? You kind of mentioned earlier, you know, that it was kind of exposed the problems, the cracks during the pandemic. I think if we are going to keep having conversations in Wyoming about economic diversification and about growth and about attracting businesses here and getting uh, the kids that we're raising here to want to make their lives here and have their careers here, we have to start thinking about uh, what it takes to support families and communities and businesses. And early childhood education is central and critical to that. And so this is one option. I think it's a great one for Wyoming uh, and for our communities because it does put the control in the hands of local communities and allows for flexibility and doesn't prescribe something uh, at the state level that everyone has to do the same thing. You keep on mentioning that it's kind of been exposed, like that the child care system hasn't like worked and it's kind of been recently exposed. So if you can just like, you know, for Teton County itself, because that's your experience, right? Like, what were the most recent years that we really saw this being a problem? In Teton County, I think in Wyoming and all across our country, the pandemic uh, sent every everyone home. And the child care sector hasn't recovered its jobs and employment the same at the same rate that other sectors have. And so it is lagging um, behind in being at the levels that we were at pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic levels were not enough. Cost is a huge factor. But across the state of Wyoming, the average uh, family pays around nine or $10,000 a year for childcare, which is significant. I think the part that changed, um, it's always been a cost problem. The operating margins for childcare facilities um, you know, they may not be operating as a nonprofit, but they're not profitable. <laughs> and so the small business model and the operating margin is so narrow and all of the costs are passed on 
to the users, which are families with young children, it makes the cost unbearable. And so often the choice is to opt out. And meanwhile, on the other side, the people working in early childhood education are. So I think this is a great moment to kind of not forget that that happened and get all, start getting the ideas out there um, to move forward and that we cannot forget what we learned from that process. That was Teton County Commissioner Natalia Macker talking about potential boosts for childcare in Wyoming. Next up, the western U.S. has been slammed by wet weather this winter. That's good news for the Colorado River, where snow could turn into a boost for major reservoirs that have shrunk to historic lows. But climate scientists say there's a lot of winter left, and the 40 million people who use the river's water should take the good news with a grain of salt. KUNC's Alex Hager reports. The snow is snowing, the wind is blowing, and high in the mountains of Colorado, the ski slopes are getting busy. To be small, so it's heavenly. It's a heavenly day of skiing. Bill Phillips is standing at the top of a lift at Snowmass Ski Area near Aspen, where the flakes are piling up. It's the closest thing to flight I will ever have. Phillips has been skiing here for 48 seasons, and he's seen good years and bad. This one, he says, has delivered. It's a, a fabulous year, and we've had regular snow. It's not just huge junk dumps, but regular, really nice patter, fluffy snow to ski in. And this snow is good for more than just skiing. All of that powder is crucial for the Colorado River. Two-thirds of its water starts as snow in the state of Colorado. This year, with totals well above average, spring snowmelt could help refill Lakes Powell and Mead, the nation's largest reservoirs. But Brad Udall, a climate researcher at Colorado State University, cautions against getting too excited. Everybody is so eager to make an early call on this, and invariably you, you'll get caught with your pants down if you, if you think you know what's going to happen. The Colorado River Basin has experienced more than two decades of mega drought. Udall says climate change is just making this whole region drier. And even with snow totals of 130% of average, it would take more than one year of deep pow to make a real dent. It's great to see a big snowpack, but we would need five or six years at 150% snowpack to refill these reservoirs. And that is extremely unlikely. Udall says warmer temperatures have already cut into the amount of snow running off into the Colorado River. Since 1970, temperatures in the region have gone up by 3 degrees Fahrenheit. And on top of that, abnormally dry soil is soaking up water before it can reach the places where humans divert and collect it. Man, we need to continue to plan for the worst here. That's what we've seen the last 23 years. That's what these warming temperatures continue to tell us. We have to plan for the worst. But planning has gotten a lot harder lately, even hundreds of miles from the mountains of Colorado. Cynthia Campbell knows that firsthand. She's a water management advisor with the city of Phoenix, which gets more than a third of its supply from the Colorado River. Our worst case scenario from our perspective is that we have to be in the habit of annually looking to the mountains to see what is the precipitation. In an ideal world, Campbell says reservoirs provide a buffer against the fluctuation of dry years and wet years. But with those reserves shrinking, cities around the southwest can only plan a year at a time. 
that's just not enough time to make changes that you would have to make. But that is where we are. And so in some ways, we're living. Is it the worst nightmare? <laughs> Might be. But the seven states that use water from the Colorado River have struggled to reduce their demand. Even in the face of crisis, they can't agree on a plan to significantly cut back on use. In the meantime, big water users are trying to stretch the supplies they already have. That's true even with this winter's big rains in California. Adele Hodge Khalil runs the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, which stretches from north of Los Angeles all the way down past San Diego. One storm is, is not going to change the game. Whether we get a wet year or not, we need to continue to focus on building the infrastructure we need to create local water supply. And as climate change keeps shrinking the snow that supplies water to people and farms across the Southwest, the need to adapt is only getting bigger. I'm Alex Hager in Snowmass Village, Colorado. That story is part of ongoing coverage of the water in the West, produced by KUNC and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm reporter Hannah Mersbach, and this is our podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every other Friday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up next, the pandemic has put exponential stress on the healthcare sector. Now, local doctors, nurses, and admin are processing this trauma through therapeutic songwriting. Music therapist Hilary Camino received an American Rescue Plan grant from the Wyoming Arts Council to use songwriting to help local healthcare workers bolster their mental health. Camino recently joined music director Jack Catlin in the K-12 studio to discuss the project. Music therapy is an evidence-based approach using musical interventions to reach desired health outcomes. So I have a master's degree in music therapy and I'm certified to practice. And through my training, I learned how to use music with who, why, and how. And so it's similar to like what an occupational therapist would do where I go in, I have an assessment with the patient, make sure it's the right fit and then develop a treatment plan based on what those desired outcomes are. So for instance, I'll give an example. So maybe somebody is in the hospital who's just had a stroke and needs to strengthen their functioning on their left side. And so I'll bring in some instruments and have them engage that left side. And what that's doing is activating those neural pathways in the brain. And music is really motivating. So it gets people to engage that side of the body. and. The cool thing about music is that it's held in all different parts of our brain. So we can access a healthy part of the brain where music is and build new neural pathways to the dysfunctional areas or around the dysfunctional areas. So that's one example of how I'd use music to help someone recovery from a physical goal. Music therapy is really cool because it also helps people with cognitive goals, emotional goals and social goals as well. So when it comes to processing emotional strain and trauma, how does music specifically aid that along? Well, we know with trauma, we hold it in our bodies. 
And so when we're playing music, we're using our bodies to make that music. And so you can be more in touch with those bodily sensations. It's called a somatic approach, which is like your internal physical perception and experience. And so that coupled with the very emotional nature of music, we're able to engage the bodily sensations and be in touch with what's happening in our body. Like, where am I holding stress? Okay, it's right in my chest. I'm in touch with that right now. And I'm not necessarily trying to uncover trauma, but we're just being more in touch with our bodies. And what we know is that having social support for people who've had trauma and are recovering from stress and trauma, that's really a powerful tool to help them recover So for this project, you worked with staff at St. John's Health to heal through the creative and collaborative process of therapeutic songwriting. What stood out to you most from these healthcare professionals when working with them so closely on the project? Well, first of all, it was amazing to me how many of our healthcare staff were musical. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of Jackson in itself. I'm always finding people who are musicians and it's always amazing to me. And I really targeted musical staff for this project because I mean, I wanted to get people in the room, first of all, but then I wanted to nurture that side of them, their their individuality. And so that was amazing to see. And it was also really cool to see how much people opened up in our sessions because it could be pretty vulnerable, you know, to be around your coworkers and be open and express yourself musically. But I was really amazed at how easily they were able to do that. And it's cool because all the songs are very different musically and lyrically. But one of the themes that I saw coming through all of the groups was this, why? You know, why are they in healthcare? Why did they get into it in the first place? And why did they continue to work in this stressful environment? And, you know, a lot of them talked about the difference they make in other people's lives and in their community we also talked about these moments that they have with their patients that are so profound that they connect with their patients on this really deep level that it kind of changes their whole perspective, not just their perspective at work, but their life, you know, and their core values. Like, this is why I'm a human on this earth is to give back in this way. And that really propels them forward and wants them to be a part of that and continue to work in healthcare. So let's preview a song, and this one's called The Holiday in Outer Space. What was the inspiration and songwriting process for this one? This was the one that kicked off the entire project for you. So we wrote it a year ago, and we're really reflecting back on the height of the pandemic. And we were talking about the very first lockdown COVID unit that we worked in. I worked in there too, and it just really felt like you were on another planet, like Mm -hmm. you were in outer space and it was around the holidays and it just felt so eerie and sterile and you would like have to wear these layers and layers of PPE. And so in the song, there's a nod to David Bowie's major Tom is like a call to help out into the universe, like who anybody who will listen. And yeah, there's a lot of themes in here just about all of the unknowns and uncertainties at that time. Decorated with red cars and tape, plastic doorways, 
Performing a song written with St. John's healthcare staff is part of a grant provided by the Wyoming Arts Council. You can hear her full interview with Jack Catlin at 891khol.org. KHOL has a new news director. Tyler Pratt is from Texas, but he comes to us from Eastern Pennsylvania, where he most recently helped launch NPR affiliate WLVR. He has over a decade of experience at public radio newsrooms across the U.S. He's a Columbia Journalism School grad, and his previous reporting has centered around criminal justice, social justice, and LGBTQ issues. KHOL Executive Director Emily Cohen welcomes Pratt to the station. I am very excited to have you at the station, and I know our community is excited to have you here. You bring a lot of experience to the KHOL team, and so we'd like to take this opportunity to introduce you to our listeners. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me and bringing me out, uh, and I'm really excited for what the news department is going to look like in 2023. How did you come to journalism and radio? You have a bit of an unconventional path. I um, really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life out of high school. I grew up in West Texas, went to college, learned a lot about, uh, (laughs) I'd say, partying and going out. And it wasn't really for me. Uh, I left or was asked to leave. Worked for a while as a server and... I actually moved to Los Angeles, played a lot of sports growing up, and that moved into dance. And then that turned into acting and comedy, which I did in Los Angeles as part of the Second City. And then I was driving all around between auditions and work, and I was listening to KCRW. It was my kind of my first exposure to public radio. We didn't, didn't really listen to it growing up. And I fell in love. Morning becomes eclectic in the morning, listening to Nick Harcourt uh, interview these artists. And I felt like he was speaking to me right in my car. And then throughout the day, getting some news and then music. And I became familiar with all the radio personalities. And I was like, I want to go back to school and get into public radio and become a journalist. And so that's what I did. I moved to Austin, Texas, got my act together, went to school, started interning at their public radio station, KUT. That turned into having my own music show. Uh, reporting about music and being kind of a part-time reporter. And then I uh, hit the road and decided to move to New York where I went to grad school. And then I've been moving all around the country, different public radio stations as sort of a 
jack of all trades in radio as a reporter, host, producer, you name it. So most recently, you're coming from a new NPR affiliate in eastern Pennsylvania that you helped start. Yeah, that was a trip. I um, I was living in California, working at a station as a reporter, and got a job on the East Coast in Pennsylvania to help launch a new, all news, all the time, public radio station, and packed up, drove across the country, got there. I was going to be the All Things Considered host And the pandemic hit a week later, and that migrated into me becoming sort of the assistant news director and helping run this station through the craziest times that we've ever experienced. That was followed by one of the most contentious elections in history, dealing with Pennsylvania politics. It's a purple state. And then uh, an insurrection after that. And so it was breaking news for about three years. What are some stories that stick with you from this time, from either that station or just your career in general? It's funny. I've been thinking about my work and it's been such a blur, especially that first year of the pandemic. Everything was just breaking news every day. Things that stick with me uh, when I was in California, uh, I was kind of on the wildfire beat and seeing the damage that that did to people's homes and how quickly I drove up to paradise for a story. That was a town that was completely destroyed in a wildfire. And seeing um, the devastation that occurred has always really stuck with me um, as we see the effects of climate change. And then politically living in Pennsylvania, I covered a lot of presidential visits. And so I saw former President Trump come to town a couple of times and his base and supporters that came out had real disdain for the media and were very threatening at times. And that was a real turning point for me. I hadn't really experienced uh, a disdain for the media. And so I'm always keeping that on my shoulder when I'm reporting and remembering there are people that don't trust what we do and how can we foster and build that trust. And that's something that I always think about in every story that we produce is how can we earn that trust from people? Because I believe that what we do is important and helps keep democracy alive in the United States. How do you earn trust? You're always checking your bias in your reporting. Um, We all have it. And so you just remember that. You get edits and you talk to your other reporters and you think about your stories and do good reporting. Get multiple points of view. Do your research. And when you make mistakes, own them. I think it's really important just to continue to talk to people from all walks of life. Everyone's got a point of view. It's all based in some form of their own personal truth. What are some of the stories that you're most looking forward to diving into here? Anything that's piqued your interest so far? One of the things that I'm kicking around right now is uh, it lo- it appears that we might be on the verge of a recession. You know, hopefully not, but that may happen. And I'm looking into how that might impact a resort town like Jackson. And I'm hoping to speak with some businesses that might have weathered the last recession lessons they learned, um, and how we can prepare and navigate this one should it unfortunately happen. I'm also looking forward to getting to know the different communities that live here and the issues that they face. We know housing is a really big one here. I have a background in uh, reporting on housing and affordability, and I know that there are people here that are really working on trying to change that, but it's not an easy task, and there's not one answer to do it. Lastly, You were a dancer. I know you love to dance. (laughs) What music moves you? What music moves me? All of it. I love good house music, electronic music, dance music, the blues, rock, anything with a beat that you can dance to. 
I think it's so fun to go out and dancing. I always refer to it as it's my church. Nice. Well, we've got a few of those genres on the Cajual Airwaves. There's a ton of dance music and great dance scene in this town. So I know you are going to have a good time. Tyler, we are so happy to have you here at the station. Folks can reach Tyler at Tyler, T-Y-L-E-R, at jhcr.org. Our email inboxes are open. And you're listening to KHOL Jackson. That was KHOL's new news director, Tyler Pratt. You can find him here at the KHOL newsroom and likely at a Jackson Hole dance party near you. That's it today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is performed by the local band Strumbucket. I'm Hannah Mersbach, and this is KHOL Jackson. Jackson.